This is Caroline Adams-Miller, the author of Getting Grit, the Evidence-Based Guide to Cultivating Passion, Perseverance, and Purpose, and you are listening to my quest for the best. Have you ever wondered where some people get the drive to pursue important goals through all the obstacles and adversity life throws at anyone who takes this path? You could just make a big effort, but that's really hard to sustain and could go wrong in so many ways if you're just closing your eyes and charging forward, as my next guest, Carolyn Miller, explains. Carolyn's book, Getting Grit, is chock full of methods to cultivate good grit based on what really works in the real world. Carolyn cares about taking a smart approach to grit because she knows personally what a huge difference that makes in what she's been able to achieve, as she shares stories about her family's swimming accomplishments, her own struggle to overcome bulimia, as well as ways to apply good grit in the workplace. Her day-to-day focus is working with professionals to get more grit, achieve their goals, and find happiness. And if that's on your to-do list, then this is the interview for you. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Dol Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Carolyn Miller. Carolyn is a leading positive psychology expert on the topic of goals and grit. She spent more than 30 years helping individuals, leaders, and companies to cultivate grit, one of the top indicators of success. Carolyn is the author of six books, including her latest, Getting Grit, the Evidence-Based Approach to Cultivating Passion, Persistence, and Purpose. Carolyn has a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania and graduated magna cum laude from Harvard. She's a top-ranked Master's swimmer in multiple events, has a black belt in Hapkido, and has more than three decades of unbroken recovery from bulimia. She lives in Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Say, when you were growing up, who was a person who inspired or influenced you? Gosh, can I say two? Sure. Okay, because they're both women and they both came to mind immediately, and I don't want to choose. First one's my grandmother, um, and um, she was a divorced woman in the 1930s who raised her, her only child, my mother, um, in adverse circumstances, but did it with zest and pluck and courage and um, really role-modeled grit for me, grit and fun. So I owe a huge debt of gratitude to my grandmother. And grandmothers came up a lot in interviews for my book. And my second is the founding um, principal of the Norwood School here in Bethesda, Maryland. And she was the first person who demanded that every child come in starting age of kindergarten, take their glove off and give her an incredibly firm handshake as you walked into school. To this day, my handshake is the first thing people comment on. Um, when they meet me, and I think for women in particular, that strong first impression is critical, and she taught me that at the age of five. How about that? Not only, I'm sure, does it give others an impression, but what do you think happens when a woman or anyone in, in general develops a firm handshake and knows that they can deliver that, and that's kind of a way to make an impression? What does it do internally for you or you think for any other your classmates who learn that lesson? 
That is such a good follow-up question. I have to believe for women in particular, it shows that we're unafraid of being seen and heard. So if you give a firm handshake, not kind of some limp, like Miss America kind of handshake, which you see a lot of women give, um, it says, I mean business, and I'm here to be heard and seen, and uh, you're not going to forget who I am, so in a good way. So I have to believe that that's a piece of what people think. So it really epitomizes making a firm impression, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it does, and I um, I have not had it steer me wrong yet. I'm going to keep doing it, so I hope I get to meet you and show you what I'm talking about. I look forward to that. Tell me, when you were growing up, did you have any specific experiences you think back on in school that led you to study psychology? Were you someone who was a leader in your class, were you someone who was asked to do difficult things, or did you pretty much have some of your own hobbies that you pursued? What is it that you think led to the cultivation of interest and preparation for pursuing this field? I'm going to go with exactly what comes first to mind. One is my great uncles, Platt and Ben Adams, went 1-2 in the 1912 Olympics in the same event, and they got they ended up coming home with uh, you know gold, silver, and bronze medals. But I grew up with uh, family stories of overcoming and excellence, and I the the first clue I had that excellence included mindset was hearing the story about how Uncle Platt in his last last jump set the world record in the standing high jump, and he did it by saying, I'm going to go out and win it, and a couple other things. So I grew up with family stories of overcoming that included mindset and resilience. The second thing I'm going to have to point to is that um, I was a history major at Harvard, but psychology entered the field because I became a professional coach in 1999, do that in addition to speaking and consulting and teaching, but I overcame bulimia back in the early 1980s when nobody got better, people died, like Karen Carpenter. And I got better really by dint of sheer force of will and developing what I now know is grit, because it had nothing to do with talent and intelligence, it had everything to do with cultivating grit. And because I wrote the very first book by anybody who overcame bulimia and lived to tell the story, I had hundreds if not hundreds of thousands of people reaching out to me in the last 35 years asking me how. And I had to begin to unpack how, not just for myself, but for other people, so I could give people hope and tools to change their own lives. You had to overcome bulimia, and you did it by a determined effort. And you happened to use some of these same things that would be called grit later on, because I'm sure as you were doing that, the term grit wasn't used as it's applied today in a psychological sense. Is that right? No. No. Mm -mm. So what do you think made things different for you that allowed you to take it on and believe that you could succeed against this very serious disease? Because it's not an easy thing, is it? Mm-hmm. No, it's not. And I think in many ways it's one of the hardest, if not the hardest, addiction to overcome because you can't, you know, plead trigger warning <laughs> and say, I don't want to be around food or ask about food or whatever. You have to, you know, eat it to stay alive. You have to prepare it often for children as they're growing up. Um, it's social. So other addictions, drugs, alcohol, smoking, you don't have to do anymore. In fact, you're a pariah if you're a smoker now. And so you have to learn to integrate recovery into a life where food is part and parcel of how people connect with other people and develop relationships and even friendships. So I think the main reason I overcame it was it was because I wanted to be alive. And it was my goal. It wasn't my school's goal or my parents' goal or my community or a spouse or anybody else. It was my goal. We call it intrinsic motivation in psychology. And I wanted to live more than I wanted to die. From that was the passion that is we now know is part of having grit, not just persistence. It's not just about being persistent because you can have stupid grit, as I write about in Getting Grit. But it was my goal, and I cared enough 
to get back up every time I got knocked down. And because I did that over and over, I got better for weeks, months, years, decades, and now am, even though I didn't set out to be this person, I'm a role model and one of the only ones people know about publicly who has long-term, sustained, unbroken recovery from bulimia. Congratulations on that. It's something that deserves to be highlighted and underscored because it it is such a significant achievement that I think that many people don't realize how much attention and diligence are required to do it. Does it get easier at some point? Back when I got better, and I'd say my first year of recovery was maybe 84 to 85, my book, the first book about recovering from bulimia was mine. It's called My Name is Caroline. It came out in 1988. Back then, there was no protocol for overcoming eating disorder, no treatments, no professional societies. I mean, it was really, it was like going to Mongolia and trying to find a needle in a haystack to get better. It was really considered extraordinary if you got better. And so for a while, I think the the, the language was recovering. I'm recovering. Mm-hmm. But I realized uh, 10 or more years ago that there's no danger of, of relapse for me. I am fully recovered. So as somebody who was a pioneer in just this movement starting, this recovery movement, someone called me the Me Too of eating disorder recovery. I was the first one to throw down a recovery story and say, it's possible to get better. And I think I opened the door for other people to have similar memoirs. Uh, that wasn't my intention, of course. I, I thought it was clever that someone even called me that. But I think I had to get better and stay better in order to see that life was full and sustainable without danger of relapse. So I think I'm fully recovered now and grew right along with the movement and am proud to not run away from this part of my my backstory, but to present it because I have no shame about it. And when we don't talk about things that are part of our backstory, we connote shame, and I have no shame about this. I'm very proud of the fact that I overcame it because it's the touchstone for everything that came later and indeed was the seed of why I wrote Getting Grit. What are some changes that you've made consciously to your environment or relationships or routines that you find help you that could also be generalized to others who are looking to make a significant change, say, in their workplace? I think one of the most important things people should understand and that I changed in in my life was I created habits that pertain to excellence, sustained excellence. And I had to remove all barriers to creating those positive habits of success. And what I wrote about in Creating Your Best Life, my fifth book on goal setting, primes. I had to create an environment full of primes that caused me to think goal-directed thoughts and, and promote goal-directed behaviors. So I, for, for my eating disorder, I got rid of the scale. The scale for me was just a reminder of all the bad things that had preceded getting better. It was always the wrong number. And I always felt bad about myself. And the irony is you look at pictures. I insisted on pictures being in my name is Caroline. So people could see that during the worst of my eating disorder years, I looked totally normal and very healthy. But to me, I looked terrible. So it was unrealistic. So I got rid of the scale. I haven't weighed myself in 35 years. My doctors weigh me. And they tell me that nothing's changing over the last 35 years. But I said, <laughs> tell me if anything changes and we'll talk about it, but I don't need the numbers. So I got rid of things that were primes for um, unfocused negative kinds of thinking and behavior. And I also found that when you stick with the winners in life, when you stick with people who have the kind of contagious thinking and behaviors you want, um, you begin to adopt those because it becomes your norm. And we now know from social contagion theory that the fastest way to change your behavior is to change your environment and the, and the quality of people around you. So those were just a few of the things that really made a difference for me that can be generalized across just about any uh, aspect of life if you're talking about how do you 
become excellent at some at something, but then even more importantly, sustain that excellence. What I like about the tools that you use and the methods that you use is that they're self-reinforcing. And this is particularly true for all the, the small business leaders listening in. There was an aspect of it which were the distortion and the disconnect between the internal and external images that Carolyn was facing. And many times business leaders, don't you have a different standard that you're judging things by than maybe you've shared with others and you feel that gap? And that's a frustration. Well, link that also to what Caroline just did with creating more of a, a relationship with winners in her life so that you would get self-reinforcing ideas from others that helped you adopt your standards and let go of things that you're using that not only weren't helping, but that were making it more difficult for you. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up and bring it back to business because I think about the role of humility in becoming your best self. And I've coached just a huge number of business leaders, male and female, and one of the things I, I have found is that the people who, who seek out excellence and want to be surrounded by excellence have intellectual and social humility. And I'm thinking about a man I coached who was in a big company, a data company that was acquired by a major international computer company. He was the head of the company here in the Northeast region of the United States. And one of the things that he realized that was that he had love of learning. I used the VIA character strengths test with all my clients, but love of learning was his top strength. And he liked to learn from books, and he liked to learn from websites, and he was very intellectual in that way, and all very much up in his head. But what he hadn't done is taken and translated that into humility from learning from other people, deliberately bringing them into his life and asking them questions, because he thought he could learn everything from books. And so it was the humility that he brought into the learning process that allowed him to not just be surrounded by people who were excellent, who had more knowledge than him or could teach him things, his willingness to learn from them. And so I think humility plays a huge role when it comes to being great at something. And even Jim Collins wrote about this in Good to Great, that the greatest business leaders have this kind of humility that's missing from bad kinds of grit, like um, faux grit and selfie grit, which we can talk about uh, later if you'd like. But humility plays a huge role in overcoming addictions, but also in being excellent. Yes. Yes, I very much get that. What was the change that happened for the executive who – started to surround himself after he admitted that he would benefit from learning from others. What were some of the things that changed in his life? A couple things. One, well, it's interesting. Um, one is that gratitude was one of his lower strengths, and he thought people just knew that they were doing excellent work because <laughs> if he didn't say something negative, that that meant that they knew it was all positive. And so he found that by having the humility to reach out and learn from them, he also found that his gratitude continued to go up, his, skill, his strength at that and his ability to connect with other people and build those durable social networks and relationships went up. So that was one of them. The one that I think he was most fascinated by, though, was the engagement at board meetings. When he stopped saying things like flip to page 36 and let's talk about the numbers there, instead he gave people information ahead of time and then asked more open-ended questions of the board um, mm -hmm. so that he would get questions from them and be able to interact with them in a slightly different way than what he thought was, you know, love of learning. I'm going to teach them what I know. And so those were two of the things that really stood out to me. Sure, because if he only thought he had the answers and was just looking for validation, he wouldn't be open to hearing their input, which could lead to better uh, solutions and ideas. And, you know, some of the people I've coached who don't have humility, their stories in business don't end well. 
I'm thinking about a bankruptcy of um, a man I coached in the printing industry who was part of kind of an old boy network. You see a lot of these, like the um, YPO and EO organizations mm-hmm. sometimes have forums where it feels like a, a lax bro culture, and they'll get very comfortable in kind of an insular world at times, not this is not a broad brush generalization, but I've seen kind of this bro culture where people are more comfortable not being challenged by people who they have relationships with. And when they don't have that kind of humility, you know, the signs that disaster is looming and, you know, creditors aren't getting paid and, and that they're not paying attention to the fact that the market doesn't want the product that they think is so great, you know, then it it doesn't end well. And so sometimes you can have a coach but not listen to what is happening in the coaching sessions too. So that's always an eye-opener. So let's back up just a tiny bit and would you define for us what are the components of grit so that we're all on the same page with everyone who's listening along on the podcast? Well, thank you for letting me go there. So Angela Duckworth is a wonderful friend and mentor to me, and she wrote the book Grit, which came out several years ago, and it really put grit on the map, number one bestseller around the world. And I think many people have become aware of grit because of her TED Talk and um, and her and her book. And her definition is um, passion and persistence in pursuit of long-term goals. But because she doesn't work with people individually and doesn't work to help other people cultivate it, she hadn't unpacked the qualities of grit and how do you, how do you bring them out in people or, or give them assignments to help them cultivate them. And so our definitions are a little bit different. As a result, the qualities and the components of grit are, are, mm-hmm. might be different if you ask us. So my, my good kind of grit is called authentic grit. That's my umbrella term. And it really is marked by passion, persistence, humility, goal setting, the right kind of goal setting, but also the ability to ho- give hope and inspire other people to do hard things that challenge them and take them outside of their comfort zone. Because I don't think grit is a good quality unless it's actually used in the process of pursuing good goals for the right reasons. And in that process of going about pursuing that goal, whatever it is, persistently, over time, with humility, without calling attention to yourself quite often, in that process, other people are awed and inspired to ask themselves, wow, what if I, what if I went for it? What if I chose to live without regrets, too, and took those kinds of, of risks? So for me, grit is good when it uplifts a community and awes and inspires other people to be better as well. It's not just an individual quality. To me, it's a community quality. Oh, that's fascinating. Help me, uh, help everyone who's listening as well, make a distinction between what many may think of superficially as grit and just pig-headed stubbornness or inflexibility. I think your definition helps capture that, but I think that sometimes grit may be misapplied in those cases. Yes. So one of the first things that stands out to me as someone who works with people and also, you know, I observe myself (laughs) as I go through these is that, you know, there's a kind of grit that is really dangerous in the wrong person for the wrong reasons. And so um, I call that stupid grit, and my definition of that is that somebody who's pursuing a goal, they fail to notice or or seek the guidance of other people who tell them that the conditions have changed and the goal is no longer relevant or viable. And so in mountaineering, there's a term called summit fever, and that's when someone is you know trying to get to the summit of Mount Everest or K2 or um, name a name a mountain peak that's very difficult to get to the top of. You get summit fever. You get fixated on getting to the top at all costs. Whether you're roped into other climbers and you're putting them them at danger or the sherp is at danger, but you're so drunk on the pinnacle that you no longer 
take the take the advice that it's time to turn around or you don't even see the weather closing in. So you don't want to have the kind of grit that can endanger your company, endanger yourself, endanger a, a, a cultural, what, what, what I say, somebody, the reputation of organizations. You look at the Enrons, you look at the Ford and the Ford Pinto disaster, and you see a lot of examples of stupid grit. People who became fixated often on a bottom line outcome that put a lot of people's lives at risk. The most recent example I can give you is Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. And I just finished reading Bad Blood by the Wall Street Journal reporter John Cario. It's a classic example of stupid grit and faux grit. She took shortcuts. She did not do the hard work that was expected of somebody um, who made the kinds of claims she did about a medical breakthrough. Mm. Right. She was the woman in California with that genome company, wasn't it? Um, Theranos, she dropped out of Stanford at the age of 19, started Theranos in 2003, but basically she was a fraud. Yes, she yes. was a liar, a cheat. She conned lots of people. They fell like dominoes. And, and a lot of these people were people we hear about in the news. George Schultz, former Secretary of State, Mad Dog Mattis, our, our Secretary of Defense. I mean, she, she spun tales that made people believe that she had done something extraordinary, and that was had this breakthrough at a very young age, which is, almost impossible to do, hundreds of tests on one pinprick of blood. Consequently, what she did is she threatened people and strong-armed them with, you know, non-disclosure agreements and ruinous lawsuits and put people's lives at risk, but ruined a lot of people's lives because she wanted to be powerful, famous, and wealthy. And when those are your motivators, then often what you find is stupid grit, faux grit, and even what I call selfie grit. So the damage she did to people's lives was extraordinary, but it went on far too long because of the secrecy and the strong-arming and the legal threats. You find a lot of dictators use those kinds of approaches to keep people silent and afraid, but ultimately, you know, the truth does come out, and these people are exposed for who they are, but what an egregious, terrible example of a woman who put herself on a platform and said, I am this leader of other women, and I'm empowered, and I've made it as the first self-made female billionaire in the world. It was all lies, and mm. it was all just a house of cards, and it came down. And uh, good grit, authentic grit, doesn't repel people. Bad grit does repel people, and this repelled everybody at a certain point once it came out. And what an antithesis to the humility that really helps people with their grit and with their pursuit of, of passionate goals. Right, no humility whatsoever. When your bottom line goal is all about you and there's no purpose to it, because people with the right kind of grit are purposeful in some way. They wake up to meaningful goals, and those goals aren't about enriching themselves necessarily. It's not about making their mark or becoming famous or powerful. I mean, she pretended to be Steve Jobs. She even dressed like Steve Jobs, believe it or not, and modeled her behavior after Steve Jobs, which wasn't always a good thing to do, quite obviously. Um, but when you wake up with a noble purpose, in Japanese the word is ikigai, you know, that which I wake up for, that's when you find the best kind of quiet um, persistent diligence and grit um, that gets up, and it's beyond resilience. You know, people mix resilience and grit up. Resilience is short-term ability to get up, and it may not even be about a goal you're passionate about. It could be because you're conscientious. Grit is about passion and getting up and doing hard things over and over and over again for the right reasons in the right context, and that's why grit is so incredibly important in life because most meaningful goals are often the hardest goals. And you will not have a meaningful life or leave behind a legacy that moves other people to take action unless you cultivate this very important quality of grit. In our society, inadvertently, 
we've actually removed a lot of the opportunities to develop grit in I don't know how many years, I'm sure you'd have a, a better sense of it, but in your book, I remember reading something about bubble wrap teacups and <laughs> snowflakes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, right. <laughs> and I thought oh, there were, it was a particularly you know, vivid description of how when we don't let our children pursue opportunities where there are chances of both success and failure, it is less valuable to them. Yeah, thank you. And I, I'll try to keep my answer short, but my goodness, you can really get me going on this because I'm the mother of three adult children who were all born smack in the middle of the self-esteem parenting movement, and we were all guided to praise our children for doing nothing, therefore the trophies for all, and everyone's a winner kinds of stuff. So, you know, the the philosophy was if you make your children happy by telling them they're great, even when they haven't done anything great or gone out of their comfort zone to really, you know, do something that is awe-inspiring, they will then have lots of confidence and they'll work very hard. And the opposite is true. You, you get narcissists and sociopaths. So we have a generation that I feel was really brought up to dumb down standards of excellence, starting with playgrounds. You go to a playground, an average playground in the United States, if not around the world, because I saw dumbed-down playgrounds in Australia and New Zealand also, is, you know, you find wood chips, kids bouncing off wood chips. There's no risk. There's no, nothing you can get hurt on at these playgrounds. So the kids grow up bubble-wrapped. And, you know, they're out long tag at schools because I guess you can break your arm playing tag and, you know, safe spaces in college. And, you know, they got rid of parallel parking for driver's license tests in Maryland, if not elsewhere, because it's too hard. I mean, give me a break. How do you prepare young adults to find out what they're made of, to understand their strengths, who, who their supporters are, if you're taking away all rigor and giving them the language of being victims of bullying and anxiety? We have... We do not have a generation that is fit to fight, according to the military. So we do need to turn this around. It is starting to turn around. And I think we have to understand and cultivate grit starting with ourselves, within our families, within our communities, our cultures. But we have to hire for grit in companies, too. And I spend a lot of time with companies helping them to ask the right questions to help identify grit. So that's a long answer there, but yes. There's a lot of grit missing in this culture. <laughs> and there are opportunities. What are one or two questions that you encourage people to ask, particularly when you are looking to hire someone into area of responsibility where they're going to be responsible for others, where they're going to be responsible for the lifespan of product or service, and need to have that persistence that grit connotes? Well, one of the things you can do is open-ended questions around tell me your story and what have you overcome in life, not some kind of store-bought adversity, but what have you really overcome? Um, not did your parents send you to Costa Rica to pick coffee beans and paint, paint sheds, you know, because it looked good on a college application. But you want to ask people about what matters to you, what are your values, who else have you helped to overcome something that was important to them. How many other people's dreams and goals have you been part of making come true? Because one thing I learned when I was overcoming my, my bulimia 30-some years ago in a 12-step in a program for compulsive overeaters is you can't keep what you don't give away. And I learned early on that it wasn't enough for me to get better. I had to turn around and help somebody else get better if I was going to keep it. And so it's really important to ask people not just what have they overcome, but who else have they helped to overcome? Because what we find in the 21st century in the soft skills that are so essential that robots cannot do for us is building bridges to other people and helping other people to accomplish hard things. So you do have to have it yourself, but you only keep it if you extend it to other people and help them to have what I call relational grit. 
And so those are just a few ideas. There are many, many more, but they have to get to the heart of what does somebody value, who are their role models. Tell me a story about a role model of yours and what he or she overcame and why does it matter to you and what's the biggest risk you've ever taken and what did you learn from taking that risk. So I could go on and on about that, but suffice it to say there are a lot of open-ended learning questions that can get to the heart of whether or not somebody has grit. And I hope that everyone listening begins to ask these questions, whether you're hiring or not, because it helps you develop an understanding of people to get to really authentic questions, such as the ones that Carolyn just described. So, Carolyn, here are a couple uh, quick answers um, that I ask every guest, and I'd love to hear your answers to them. What are some of the key components to your routine for daily success? I get up and I'm in a swimming pool usually by 5 or 6 a.m., four to five days a week, and I work out hard. And the best Caroline is also the physically involved Caroline, so I do athletics probably seven days a week for the most part, but swimming four days a week really makes a difference. What's a book you've given as a gift in the last year? I really like Captain Class by Daniel Coyle, I think. Love that book, and I just wrote, I just bought Culture Code. But I've been giving away Bad Blood lately, so I'll just give another plug to Bad Blood about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. What's the tool or system you use to stay on track and productive? I love the Via Character Strength Survey. Knowing and utilizing my top five to seven character strengths every day in the service of being my best self, my most authentic self, and pursuing my goals has made me more successful but also more comfortable in my own skin, especially when other people are involved. What are your your top strengths? (laughs) The ability to love others and be loved back, creativity, zest, bravery, and wisdom. And what's the best piece of advice you've received? Plan your work and work your plan. Well, Carolyn Miller, it has been such a a delight to talk with you today on my quest for the best. I want to thank you so much for sharing with us your journey and your story, um, starting with developing a mindset at an early age by listening to your uncle who overcame so many obstacles and achieved so much in swimming. You got to your own goal and internalized it to overcome bulimia and develop those habits when there really wasn't any supporting uh, structure around you. How you've helped so many executives and managers and people from all walks of life uncover and adopt the different aspects of positive psychology, effective goal setting, and grit from an evidence-based pursuit, and helped us understand how there can be stupid grit as well, (laughs) where people pursue goals that are either in service of just being powerful, famous, and wealthy, and not really incorporating any sort of meaning to it in contrast to uh, the noble purpose that it characterizes good grit. Thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. And thank you for having me as your guest. Tell me, where can we find out more about you and your work online? The best place to go is my main website, and that's just my name, www.carolinemiller.com. Or if you just want to get added to a mailing list where you get early offers like free chapters of upcoming books, just text the word goals and grit, all one word, goals and grit, to 444-999. You'll get added to my mailing list, and that way things will come to you. You don't even have to search for them. And what should people think about when they when – we think about getting grit, which you've researched so thoroughly. How could you sum it up for something for us to think of as a, a parting thought? I think we can train ourselves to have a mindset that I call the why not mindset. Train yourself to ask yourself why not instead of why whenever a challenge uh, presents itself. Recently I heard that Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for a Meaning, was originally called in German, Nevertheless Say Yes to Life before it was translated into Man's Search for Meaning. And I think that says it all. Nevertheless, say yes to life. 
yes and, or why not. And if you train yourself to do that, you will have cultivated one of the most important things that we see in people with the right kind of grit, and that is this ability to walk towards the cannons, not away from them. And you'll never have regrets if you can train yourself to have that kind of mindset. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I'd appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.